This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt Chorley. now lots around this week about going green the government unveiling its net zero strategy and telling us we're all gonna have to have heat pumps and so on Well, next week, we're going to be joined by Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's spokeswoman for COP26, those climate change talks, and she wants to answer your questions. So any questions you've got about what COP is, what does success look like, which countries are the most difficult to get on board, what's it all going to mean for our lives, whatever questions you've got about climate change and the COP26 talks, email me now, matt.chorley at times.radio with your questions. And we'll put them to Allegra Stratton next week. And you'll be able to hear that on the podcast too. Right, coming up on today's podcast, we've reconvened the Times Radio focus group. James Johnson is in the chair asking, did swing voters even notice the party conference season? What do they make of it all? What do they make of Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer? Uh, it's not great for Boris Johnson. It's brutal for Keir Starmer to stay tuned for that. First, as ever, it's our columnist panel. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, 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 yes. It's everyone's favourite time of the week. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. And good morning, David. Good morning. The answer to the question how to save money is marry a rich person and don't get divorced. I'm serious. <laughs> Rishi, Su- Rishi Sunak, it's, uh, it's, it's infallible. You can do what you like <laughs> after that. Find yourself uh, a, a multi-billionaire father-in-law, job, job done. Then you could afford to buy a pint of beer. Uh, yeah. Right, um, uh, let's start with, uh, I mean, inevitably, after the, the, the sad death of David Amos at the weekend, everyone is now using it to further arguments that perhaps they've been uh, making before. And the one that you particularly want to focus on, David, was this idea of David's law, or Amos's law, a crackdown on social media abuse of public figures and an end to online anonymity, even though, as far as we know, it's got nothing to do with the, 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 the case of, of David Amos himself. What's your, what's your take on this, David? 
But in one form or another, Danny and I certainly have discussed this dozens of times and probably with you as well and so on. And this is the kind of constantly reiterated problem. Uh, and I, I, I suddenly realise it takes me back to a day over, and Danny will remember this, about 12, 13 years ago, before social media was a big thing, uh, and when the Guido Fawkes site had just been set up. And Danny had seen something on the Guido Fawkes site and I think had written about it and so on. And I was really angry with him. And the reason I was angry with him was on that site there was a whole lot of commenters who would abuse people like me in really ferocious terms, called it the C word and everything. And it was the only time that, to my knowledge, <laughs> to my knowledge, I stressed, I'd been called the C word in public. And so my initial feeling was, why would Danny do that and give publicity to a site that did something like this? And then I gradually realised that Actually, he was right. And I was just going to have to kind of suck this up. Uh, it was not nice. It was not pleasant. It's what the site did, etc. But people were reading it and I would somehow have to kind of ride it out. Nevertheless, it was, if you like, a kind of my sign of a forerunner of the sort of discussions, not discussions, the kind of language that people would use and the way in which some people would abu abuse you. And the one thing that we know about social media was it enabled people to do things on the spur of the moment and so on. It didn't even have to be very many people um, that previously they'd only done in green pen letters, as we used to call them, or not been able to do the talk. They just shouted at the telly or something like that. This time they could now put it down uh, uh, in writing. Um, uh, and some of them, of course, would do it anonymously. Some of them, remarkably, do it under their own names, uh, etc. And there are all kinds of reasons for people maintaining anon anonymity and not having it. There are things I won't debate with people who are anonymous. I won't debate Israel. I won't debate uh, certain other kinds of questions with people who use anonymous uh, uh, science, uh, sites because it means that you just simply don't know who you're discussing with. It's very unprofitable. So into all this comes the question of the abuse of MPs, the abuse of people in kind of political language, and whether or not there are kind of overall, let's use that word from the beginning, portmanteau ways in which you can effectively stop it from happening without also impacting upon quite important elements of freedom of speech. And on the whole, I've been of the view that you can't, that as much of it as you can suck up mute block and simply say you're not going to you're, you're not going to be affected by it, the better because otherwise a small minority of people drive the majority of people completely nuts but that position is becoming more and more uh, difficult to maintain and under more and more pressure from people who always want something more done about it Danny, what, what, what's your, your take on this? Because I'm, I'm not, I, whenever I'm on uh, Twitter and it's people occasionally are a bit rude, but the mute button is my friend. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and then they just go away. But then I'm aware that some people are more affected by it. And saying, oh, just ignore it um, isn't always a, a realistic. No, I, I openly don't think, I think that's the reason why I raised that in relation to the comments under Guido Fawkes. And actually, I think... Um, the publisher did do something about it on that occasion. Um, it, 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 people um, don't have to publish these things, right? So Twitter, uh, Facebook, other organisations make money out of people's comments. Uh, they're making money, therefore, out of people's abuse. They don't have to publish those things. They don't have to make money out of them. And yes, it is expensive to, for them to try to moderate the comments that come into their sites. But nevertheless, I think that it's reasonable to expect them to do that. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't think it's got anything to do with this particular uh, 
instance, or it doesn't look as though it has got anything to do with it, but it doesn't mean it's an unprofitable subject for public discussion at this moment. And I do think um, that there's a difference between saying so-and-so ought to be allowed to say something and saying so-and-so must or should um, regard it as reasonable to publish something, right? And so I, I believe that if uh, a social media pub platform publishes abuse, they share some degree of responsibility for the abuse that they are publishing. So that, I think, is... You know, and it's obvious, you look at the public debate, that the, the pressure, therefore, that people's kind of behaviour is put... Are we are putting on each other, and it has uh, reduced... Um, our, our civility and the quality of our discourse. It's not the only reason. You know, I think economic growth is one of the reasons why our uh, political debate is, you know, or reduced economic growth is one of the reasons why our political debate is more fractious uh, than it has been. Uh, but it's still um, a factor and it's an important one. Do, it's a bit weird, David, because as far as we know, in this case, um, anonymous posts on social media don't seem to have played a part, that actually politicians, whether it's Boris Johnson or Priti Patel, latching onto this idea, going after the social media companies who are the sort of baddies and all this, when actually this this looks more like a failure of policy, of policing, of, um, you know, but we're not talking about that because we're over there talking, well, although actually it's on the front well, of the Times today, it might have been a failure of the prevent strategy. But do you know what I mean? It's politicians go, ah, right, well, why don't we go over here and bash up the social media companies who we like bashing up anyway, even well, though yeah, it doesn't I seem to be pertinent. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I mean, it's it's bringing together an issue which uh, is salient uh, with uh, a problem with a with a disaster, a catastrophe, a murder, <clears throat> with which it has nothing to do, simply because the person who was murdered advocated it. Um, and in that sense, you could describe it as understandably <clears throat> understandably opportunist, but it really has nothing. I mean, the issue quite clearly here is the security of public servants in a situation whereby it has been discovered how easy it is to identify them, find out where they are, and to attack them if the attacker is not concerned with being caught. And if that's the situation, we are all of us. Danny is, you are, I am, and politicians are particularly vulnerable. People can find out where we live if they think that they've got uh, grievances against us. If they're not at all worried about going to prison or, uh, or even sometimes living on, then they can find us and they can kill us. Uh, and that's a rea and that's a reality. So the question for MPs is one of guarding them. Um, uh, and I, I, as far as I can see, if you had, let's say, one more incident of this kind or any more serious incidents, the pressure will be on for uh, constant guarding. There's only 650 odd of them, uh, etc. And we may have to invest in it. And that's the issue raised by David Amos's murder, uh, not the issue of what happens on the internet, which is separate and which is subject to the kinds of arguments which Danny and I and you have been talking about. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's uh, let, let's move on and talk about some other stuff now. Um, uh, uh, succession. Have you both been watching? Have you watched it, Danny? No. <laughs> I um, you know, I, 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 I've just watched a lot of things. I will do at some point, I'm sure. But oh, right, fine. It's not the it's not the you're, you're against. So, so David, you. I'm not watch, a great fan. Can I just first. say that I tell you what? I did watch one of them. I'm never a great fan of programs in which literally every single character is unsympathetic, um, and I couldn't care less whether <laughs> what happens 
between one unsympathetic character and another. Um, For other reasons, I don't don't so much like Curb Your Enthusiasm because everything always goes wrong to all, you know, to the central character every week. 40 Towers is the same. You know, I do actually prefer at least the hope that something quite (laughs) nice might happen to a nice Uh, person. Oh, God. Oh, God. Danny Finkelstein is a Richard Curtis man, you can tell. You've got to love Richard Curtis. Great. You've got to be, you've got to love them all. So Ted Lasso is your ultimate comedy and like curb your enthusiasm and doesn't yeah of course you i do actually but as long as you <laughs> so understand so the limitation I. the limitations of it <laughs> funnily enough last week danny wanted to do the gordon the the brown uh the blair brown years and wanted to ask me about it but i haven't watched it because i'm not particularly interested in watching that kind of thing on television so this but he's much more gamely said he will discuss succession despite not having seen it and i think that shows <laughs> but, you a real but, difference but, between the two characters <laughs> i'm not prepared to talk about things i don't know anything about but danny's much braver I think well maybe maybe their daddy is the sympathetic character that people can warm to. Um, uh, but the point <laughs> the point David was that in the first and I I watched the first episode of Succession last night and uh, there's a lot of fuss made about uh, Logan Roy trying to get through to the president in a in a moment of crisis because his whole business empire is about to collapse uh, and yeah. he wants to get through to the president which got you thinking more broadly about it politicians did. it did uh, and, and got, rich it, it, people. Yeah, it got me wanting to ask Danny about this because he knows more about it. Because I, 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 I remember being uh, staying in uh, Corfu in two thousand and eight, and so on. And we we took out a little we took out a little boat, a tiny little boat, and went past a couple of gigantic yachts. One belonged to the proprietor of this entire enterprise we're speaking from, and the other to a guy called Oleg Deripaska. And it so turns out that on that yacht at the time was an old friend of mine called Peter Mandelson. Now. I could not understand why Peter Mandelson wanted to spend time, and honestly, I'm, I'm not being mad here, on Oleg Deripaska's yacht, particularly after seeing Succession <laughs> and seeing what goes on on those yachts, but nevertheless. And then during the course of Succession, there's a call to the president, and obviously you can get through as Logan Roy to the president, even if you can't necessarily get what you want. And I was thinking about it in terms of Richard Desmond, all these other kind of, you know, some of these really rebarbative uh, millionaires and billionaires. And I was thinking, what beyond their kind of power, I'm seriously going on that, what is the attraction of these people to politicians? Politicians on the whole can never be rich, unless of course, as we said, you marry very uh, very rich uh, and so on. So why why do they like it? What is the charm of it? Why do they feel so romanced by it? Why does Boris Johnson go to Yevgeny Lebedev's place in Umbria all the time? Well, okay, I think Danny. there are a number of answers to this question. The first, the first is the sort of bleeding obvious. It's a very nice. I'm sure it's a very nice um, uh, place, and they're very nice yachts, right? So I'm sure that's at least part of the reason. I think another reason uh, is that um, th- they're fascinated by it. So one of the things about being in politics, you're fascinated by all sorts of people and things. And those people will also be fascinated by things at the other end of the spectrum, actually, um, just because they're fascinated in life and and odd things, extraordinary things. Right. So I think that's an element of it. Um, uh, There's also there's always an element of fundraising involved in it. And I think also when politicians retire, they find they're very, very uh, prestigious individuals. Everyone wants to talk to them and they tend to 
mix with people who earn a lot of money. And they're thinking to themselves, hang on a minute, I'm probably the brightest person in this room. How comes these other guys who are not as accomplished or as worldly as me have got all this money and I haven't, right? And all of those things, both good and bad, and mixtures of good and bad motives, mix up in, you know, because these people are human, in what then happens. And people are obviously attracted to different things, right? Uh, and and to... to to uh, are interested and uh, propelled by different fascinations. So some people Hold are on. more fascinated I, I, by this than others. Hold on, Danny. Boris Johnson didn't go and stay in a yurt with a homeless well, soldier in North no, Wales. No, that's why I started. That's why I started. That's why I started. Out of incredible curiosity, they never do. No, no, that's why I started with the first thing. Right, I, I'm not. I'm not evading that. Uh, all, and the lot, the first and last points, I think, are probably the most potent ones. I'm just trying to give you the full range of motivations. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think, unquestionably unquestionably right uh, somebody gets invites you to an incre- you know ultra luxurious uh, holiday home or a beautiful yacht uh, you'll go because it's quite nice to be in a beautiful yacht or a, or a, a, I won't go well I won't go okay well, I don't I don't I don't I don't spend uh, a couple <laughs> some, of weeks kissing kissing uh, a double s no, to some rich there are also lots simply of, because they're lucky Good, and some lots of politicians won't either, but some do. Right? You just like, you asked me why do they do it? You didn't ask me why they didn't do it. Um, oh, who, and, uh, who doesn't? Who doesn't do it? Well, you know, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people listen to this will think Jeremy Corbyn doesn't do it, but then he appears on Radio Iran, right? So the, 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 you know, <laughs> the, 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 people have their different motivations and they're attracted and excuse different things, right? And you just you're, you're asking for a range of motivations, unquestionably. Uh, curiosity does definitely invite is definitely involved in this you mm. know just from i know from experience you asked me from my experience that is my experience danny finkelstein and david Wanovich. of course you can read them both in the times every week just get yourself a digital subscription go to the times.co.uk forward slash times red box up next it's the focus group it's that time of the year Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, every month on my Times Radio show, we convene a focus group, a panel of voters in association with Kex CNC. James Johnson's in the chair, and this is what happened on our latest one. First of all, we're legally obliged to explain what is a focus group and why is it different to normal opinion polling? 
Absolutely. So it's not a poll of a thousand people. It's eight people. Um, and it's not intended to be representative of views across the country. Um, you can't do that with such a small group of people. But what it does allow you to do is get a deeper dive and a sense of what people really mean when they answer things in polls. So how are they talking about politicians? In what way do they speak about them? Um, and, and why are they saying the things that they that they do? So political parties, the government uses them a great deal. We've obviously been doing them here on Times Radio, and it really tries to give us that nuanced view underneath uh, the public polls. And so who were you uh, speaking to in the focus group, and how do you go about finding them? So this time we spoke to swing voters. Um, so we went out and looked for people who voted Conservative or Labour at the last election, um, who are now undecided, uh, largely of working age, split between male and female. Um, uh, and they were from this time round Wolverhampton, uh, Swindon and Sheffield. Uh, so we got them together in this in this group. And I suppose we'll see as it as it as it pans out, Matt. But I think, you know, one of the sort of key questions that we've tried to answer this time, everybody's seeing Conservatives still ahead of the polls, lots of people asking, how can this be in the, you know, in the pandemic with, with the cost of living uh, rising, other things going on? We've really tried to answer that question of why people are still, broadly speaking, in the public polls sticking with the Conservatives. OK, well, let's kick off then. Let's, let's hear the group uh, in, uh, in, in full effect. Uh, this was a very straight one. You always kick off with a nice, straightforward, open question just to get a sense of the group. Uh, the question being, how is the government doing? I think any government that was in, you know, whether it had been Labour, Liberal Democrats, um, everybody would be the same. Boris can't do anything right, literally. But in all in all, I think he's, he's not done that bad a job. It's a thankless job, really. Um... He's had a tough time. Um, I don't think anybody has done a, um, as good a job as what he's done, to be fair. I think the government is doing a bit of a mediocre role at the moment. They seem to be falling into that rut like previous governments beforehand. They get to a stage where everything just seems to be the norm. So come next election, they'll probably be out because the country will want something different. Whatever Boris had done at the time, whoever was in government at that point would have got a backlash on whatever they decided I don't think he could have done right for doing wrong I like that he kicked out those ministers that were embarrassing him the other week I'm sorry I don't know their names but the ones that said he met a footballer and he'd actually met a rugby player or the other way around or and he did get rid of at least two in that recent shake-up and I thought good yeah, um, there still seems to be that age-old problem of the conservative party not being in touch with reality and like they don't understand poverty and how some people have to live. And then on the other hand, you got was it like Matt Hancock's next door neighbour who they gave that massive big contract to? So they do shoot themselves in the foot sometimes, but all the criticism that they've had is it's but it's only in hindsight. They're doing the best they can in a situation that we've never been in but at the same time everything they're, they're under the spotlight so anything they do wrong is in the news is highlighted well there we are so that's uh, a pretty broad uh assessment of of how the government's doing that and i know james and we'll get we'll get the messages in a minute do text in eight seven trouble two start most of the word times you could tweet me out times radio there will be people screaming at the radio saying, what are you talking about? Of all of the things that have gone wrong in the country, how are you still giving the government of the benefit of the doubt? But th that is just reality, that the public are still incredibly forgiving. 
Yeah, and this is why we do these focus groups. You know, this is the reality check compared to the world of, of social media um, and Twitter. I mean, look, it's not overwhelmingly positive about the government. People aren't saying they're doing an amazing job. I'm really happy with them. They're not citing lots of examples, though one lady did point to the uh, sacking of, I think she was referring to Gavin Williamson there as, as a positive. Um, but what's really happening is that COVID and the pandemic is really providing a sort of a reputational screen still uh, for Boris Johnson and, and the government. We saw that, we've seen that since we started doing these focus groups last June, um, but that really is carrying on and it's taking us into uh, this period of rising the rise cost of living as well. So people aren't looking and blaming the government for what's happening. They're still looking and blaming COVID and saying, actually, the government are doing a pretty good job in those in those circumstances. A couple of warning points. The chap who said um, it's quite mediocre at the moment, it's perhaps falling into the trap of what governments always do. Um, that's certainly something for Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, um, to look out for. But as I say, there is this sort of protection from, from, from the pandemic and also a bit of a sense that sometimes perhaps the media is a little bit unfair. There was an interesting uh, qu- uh, quote there near the end from the lady who said they're under the spotlight too much. You know, they're pulling, being pulled up for the things <laughs> they do wrong. And this is one of the things we see a lot. You know, people say the news always focuses on the negative rather than the positive, and that's feeding a bit through into gov- views of the government too. It's interesting that the the sort of um, no one saw the pandemic coming. Nobody could be prepared for it. Give them the benefit of the doubt. They've done the best they can in extraordinary circumstances. That does now seem to be feeding into other things, other areas, as if the as if the government is 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 in no way um, sort of involved in anything, whether it might be, you know, lorries, driver shortages, cost of living, whatever. Um, uh, let's take a look uh, now at, on the subject of cost of living. You asked them uh, specifically if they thought Brexit was in part to blame for the cost of living going up. I think it's definitely partly involved in Brexit. Um, I don't know kind of too much about what certain parts of it would have affected the prices. I mean, I was I was told the story with the fuel that it was uh, they'd got a horrendous backlog that was going out of date. So that's why, obviously, it was put out in the news. I don't know how true it is, but I don't know enough about Brexit to blame Brexit, but it definitely did seem like we didn't have enough HGV drivers. People were sent back and not given visas to work here, and then we didn't we haven't got the transport to get things to the supermarket. Brexit, <clears throat> I would say, is about. 50% class as foreigners, but you know what I mean, that, that they've all gone back to Poland or wherever they've come from, uh, which is obviously then shortened for places like HGV. And at HGV, they're offering all sorts of incentives at the moment. They've actually taken out reversing, and they've said that you could take your test, there'd be no reversing involved, and then when you get a job, you could ask the people that, you, that employ you to, to teach you how to reverse. All, all it takes is someone on the news to go, oh, petrol, you need petrol, you need toilet paper, you need this, and, you, and everyone's like, oh, my God, we've got to go and get this. And it's, it just ends up being ridiculous. I don't know who's behind it or... Well, there we are, um, James Johnson. Really interesting in that it's sort of... I don't know if it's deliberately trying to find excuses for the government or, or it's somehow not looking to the government to be the solution to problems that people face in their lives? Yeah, I think what's happening here is about where people get their information from. And 
something that has been a feature of my focus groups for a long time, um, as well as in this one, is that people don't really know who they can, who, can, who they can trust. They don't trust uh, the media. They don't necessarily trust, trust social media or the things they've heard from their friends. And they don't really trust the government either. And therefore, they don't really know just how serious an issue perhaps cost of thing is. They don't know how serious an issue or why there was a fuel crisis, for example. You heard the chap there, you know, referring to this uh, um, uh, theory that there was excess fuel, and that's why um, the media were putting it out there that there was a fuel crisis. You know, there is a world of conspiracy. There's this vortex of mistrust. And in that scenario, um, the government gets away with, with quite a bit of the blame um, because people don't quite know where to look for who to blame. Brexit was mentioned, but even that wasn't really linked um, to the government or, or, or linked to any sort of real sense of grievance or anger. So I think it comes down to that, that, that sense of mistrust and that gives opportunities for the government to communicate directly with voters, even though it's part of that, that, that mistrust as well. It's, it's, it is uh, fascinating that, and I suppose it, it, it's, it's, it's the thing that surprises me is that given how interventionist the government has been in the last 18 months, particularly at the early stage of the pandemic, literally telling us where we could go, what we could do, paying people uh, to furlough and so on, that, that, that now the, that hasn't necessarily led to a, a view that the government should be sorting out problems. They seem to be just buffeted by forces rather than being a for, force themselves. But let's focus on uh, some of the personalities then. And uh, you asked them for sort of straightforward in one or two words, to sum up uh, some of the party leaders, let's kick off with what the uh, the focus group, the Times Radio focus group, had to say about Boris Johnson. He's a likable character who is a bit of a Jack the Lad, so he's relatable. He just says a lot of words before he actually gets to the point he's getting to. He's a rambler. I just think he's a bit of a Joe. A bit of a clown. Someone with that personality to lead our country through COVID was just... Worrying. <laughs> yeah, I think he's a bit of a bumbling buffoon, to be fair. In our family, we call him Tim Nice But Dim, after the Harry Enfield character. It's, it's, quite, it's quite nice to see a politician that was that actually makes a joke and sort of like down, more down to earth than any other politician we've ever had. I know he's Prime Minister, but he gets all his aides and his other people to advise him. So he's just like... A figurehead, as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes you think, can he make the right decision? I know he doesn't make all the decisions, and obviously they come from his bike benches and whatnot. But I don't know. He just he just comes across a bit too wanting to be likable. He's obviously the figurehead. He's not making all the decisions. Is he the person that I'd have wanted in for COVID? No, probably not. Do I hate him? No, because you can't hate him. I've met someone who's seen him come into a um, conference type situation where he's given a speech and he's all um, well groomed and everything else. And before he goes on stage, he ruffles his hair to give that trademark rough look that he's got. He's doing it to be seen and be approachable. But at the same time, I feel confident in the fact that he is well educated and he knows what he's talking about, even if he does try and dumb down his speech. So because he doesn't use complicated words, the everyday guy in the street can understand what he is saying. Well, that's pretty, that's fascinating. That um, It's quite a sophisticated, for a group of people who actually didn't know a huge amount about politics, it's quite a sophisticated understanding of what Boris Johnson's up to. They know it's an act, he's a clown, he's a joker, he ruffles his hair, he's just a figurehead. It's fascinating, Joe. 
Yeah, it is. And, you know, that quote there um, it doesn't use complicated words. I mean, you know, forgiven if you watch the conference speech, I didn't know some of the words that Boris Johnson was was <laughs> using, but he's created this impression that, you know, he's able to to speak in an accessible way to these to these voters. And, that, and that's what they see. Um, yeah, look, this was a pretty uh, positive reaction to Boris Johnson. And I think the real sort of danger for opponents of Boris here is that, one thing that gets said a lot is that eventually voters will find out Boris Johnson. They'll work out that it's an act and they'll see below this um, bumbling veneer. Now, the interesting thing is, is that these voters kind of had and they were sort of in on the act. Um, and it was actually a bit of a positive, as you heard from that chap at the end there, because it gave them a sense that even if he wasn't really who he was making out to be, actually underneath there was someone who was a bit more confident and was a bit more aware and a bit more intelligent uh, and a bit more on top of his brief. So it is, it is the sort of worst of both worlds if, if for people trying to uh, attack Boris Johnson and, and the Labour Party. Um, and there's also this figurehead thing that he's coming. Up. Now, that's not something I had really heard so much, um, certainly in focus groups when I was doing them in Downing Street under Theresa May. There's, I think, with, with the advent of Dominic Cummings and Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance, um, people seeing these advisors much more in a much more visible way, people have sort of taken away a little bit more of the blame from Boris Johnson himself, and that's having a, fact, a role too. We just heard what voters had to say about Boris Johnson. Now, let's find out what they had to say about Keir Starmer. I dislike Keir Starmer. I think he uses his um, law background to try and bamboozle Boris. And um, anything that has gone wrong, he's very, very quick to say, well, I would have done this or I would have done that. Whether it's fake news or not, Keir Starmer is actually remembered for the one that let Jimmy Savile get away. He was in charge of the CPS at the time. And a lot of people don't know who he is. He's not made that impression. I feel that the Labour Party were, were so behind after Jeremy Corbyn. We needed this big, strong character, and there wasn't one. People aren't interested in what he could have done different. We need to know what, what he wants to do from now. It's an absolute tool. I wouldn't trust a word that comes out of his mouth. He's not a likeable character, and I don't like the fact that he just kind of well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, and anyone could be in a good job if they knew everything. If they could predict the future, then obviously everyone would get the right answers. I would struggle to recognise a picture of him. I, there was a lady, I saw a clip of the TV program, I can't remember who it was, and there was a lady sat in the same room as him, and he was talking about her, and she said, excuse me, who are you? And that just about summed it up for me. A completely wrong man for the job. He looks a bit of a weirdo. Well, there we are. That's pretty brutal uh, stuff there, uh, rounding up what voters think about um, Keir Starmer. Now, one of the things I wanted to focus on with you, first of all, James, is this, the Jimmy Savile stuff, which bubbles around quite a lot. I mean, I see it quite a lot on social media, and it's clearly got some cut through. This idea that because um, when the decision was taken not to prosecute Jimmy Savile in 2009, Keir Starmer was the head of the... Uh, he was the director of public prosecutions at the Crown Prosecution Service. He wasn't involved uh, directly as far as we can tell in the decisions that were made uh, but this clearly does seem to have some cut through and there have been some people who said that Keir Starmer needs to go hard on his DPP uh, background his lawyer background but then the, 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 this 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 issue the Jimmy Savile issue seems to bubble up even though it doesn't really play any part in the national sort of media conversation 
Yeah, quite. And you heard the chap there. He said whether it's fake news or not, and then went on to to say it anyway. So even though people might have some doubt about the the source of it, they are it is still informing uh, their political views. Now it doesn't come up all of the time, um, but uh, it does pop up every now and then. And it might be one of those things that, as you say, on social media, come an election campaign. Uh, could have a role, especially if it was linked to voters' existing concerns about about the Labour Party and crime. So, yeah, it's a good example of how um, what I'm sure many people would call um, uh, conjecture or, or, or would call, you know, perhaps particularly concerning stuff on social media really can cut through and inform the views of, of voters. But I have to say, Matt, you know, on the rest of the views of, of Keir Starmer there, um, I think you said it on Twitter yourself, you know, this is one of the worst uh, um, sort of showings for Keir Starmer we've had in these focus groups since we started doing them they don't they don't they no longer say they don't know who he is they say they know who he is but other people don't know who he is he's sort of become a known unknown and that's even more damning there's lots of focus on hindsight rather than uh, and they rather than sort of labor defining what they want to do in the future people don't have a sense uh, of what Keir Starmer stands for I have to say, I, I never heard, just even despite how bad things were at the bitter end of Theresa May's premiership, I never heard uh, comments quite this negative, even about Theresa May then. There were always positives in there about her resilience. Um, often people in number 10 wouldn't believe me near the end that voters were still saying uh, positive things. Um, I think Labour are doing their own focus groups, and I think it would be very hard to take much solace from, from these if you were Keir Starmer listening to it. Well, in fact, those focus groups now being done by Deborah Mattinson, uh, who uh, used to do them for Neil Kinnock, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. Uh, and she's been on this show before she took up the job of Kirsten. I mean, she came on the show and used to tell us what people had told her in focus groups. But they've got, I mean, it's genuinely true to say we've been doing them since, what, June last year. And this is definitely the most uh, brutal about um, about Keir Starmer. The other question which always comes up, though, the other person always comes up, he's still remarkably popular. I mean, whether or not oh, that will change after the budget, I'm not sure, is uh, Rishi Sunak. Let's take a listen to see what the, the, uh, the swing voters in the Times Radio Focus Group had to say about the Chancellor. And I'm happy with him because throughout the pandemic, my business was on hold, but then I got the self-assessment income support grants and I also got the local council support as well to keep my business afloat so far as I'm concerned Rishi Sulak's got my vote in that department. I think he comes across um, very informed very knowledgeable and that to me is reassuring. I agree I, I quite like him um, I think the whole kind of furlough scheme uh, he's, um, he's a very likeable guy um, seems well educated and knowledgeable think he's likeable at the moment because let's face it from what he's had to do uh put furlough into place and everything else he's going to be likeable um the proof of the pudding is going to be <laughs> when like i said earlier on that all this money has to be paid back so he's still very very popular isn't he Rishi sunak and when you uh james gave them the choice boris johnson or keir starmer and then boris johnson or Rishi sunak it got some great uh, uh, eyebrow-raising answers. James. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. So when we did Boris versus uh, Keir, everybody chose Boris in that group. Um, when we did Boris versus Rishi, it was split down the middle. Um, and it does show that Rishi Sunak does still have this appeal. It's quite interesting because a lot of people did say, are we going to see some of the shine go off of Rishi Sunak this year? We've obviously had now two tax-raising events um, with change the personal allowances and the budget at the start of the year. And then, of course, the national insurance rise. Now, they haven't quite come into practice yet, 
but it seems that nobody really knows that Rishi Sunak is responsible for these tax rises, and and nor are they that that frustrated by them. Uh, but I suppose one of the one of the big things coming down the road that might be difficult for him is he's got the budget next week, where there's some difficult decisions that have to be made. Uh, whether it's you know he's already said he's going to put up national insurance to pay for uh, the NHS and social care. He's cutting universal credit, and you asked him directly if they were worried about this. Whatever government is in, they've got to get some of that, recoup some of that money back into the coffers, and and, and national insurance taxes. I mean, it's, it's all everything's going to go up. It, it, they've got to get the money back in. I don't mind feeling the pinch if that's what we need to repay the debt, but I want it to be fair, and I don't feel it will be. But that's a typical conservative thing that they'll take it out on the little people. And and then the the higher tax bracket won't notice anything. Whereas £150 a month is going to make a difference to us as a family. So, um, yeah, I'm concerned. The thing that struck me, James, was, was despite the fact it sort of dominated the news agenda, Universal Credit and National Insurance hadn't really got the cut through you might have expected. Yeah, and a big caveat here is that obviously voters might not be feeling it yet. Next, next comes in. Uh, next year and obviously universal credit only announced very recently um but yes there's not a big um backlash on on this just yet i think the key thing is what that lady said there about it being fair and if labor can paint the conservatives as doing this in an unfair way um then we could see things change but you've got to remember that the person announcing these things is a very popular politician in rishi sunak um, and also that the conservatives are and rishi sunak himself are aware of the potency of that fairness line and i think that's why you saw um whether it was with the personal allowances change earlier in the year that's why you saw corporation tax going up as well it's why you saw with the national insurance rise also a tax on dividends so the conservatives can try and say actually look this is being spread um across people along the sort of income income spectrum so that's really where the battle is if these tax rises or, or universal credit cut can be painted as unfair by the Labour, by the Labour Party, then you could see that situation change. Do you think that uh, Rishi Sunak's got a sort of, sort of enough, to use a sort of financial metaphor, enough credit in the bank over the last 18 months that people do seem to be w- willing to trust him that if he's, if he's making decisions, even if they're unpopular ones, he knows what he's doing. He was good for the, you know, he was good for us the last year. So even if they're they're tough, then then you know I'll go along with that. Do you think that's the case, or at some point will that credit run out? I think there's two things there. The first is the reason they like Rishi Sunak. It's not just because of furlough. We heard a bit of it there, but it's also because they like how he announced the furlough. They feel that he connected with them. They feel he understood them. People talk about him as not being like an average politician. So that's a real advantage and a real strength that he's got. Um, The second thing is, is that voters are very aware that there is a large COVID debt to tackle. Um, They're pretty uh, uh, clear about that. They're pretty candid about that. And they know that tough decisions are coming down the line. I've actually heard more voters talk about the size of the debt than I have uh, Conservative MPs. Um, So this is something that Rishi Sunak can also lean on um, and that will mean that voters do not think that Rishi Sunak is just callously making cuts or callously raising taxes but he's doing it in a difficult context now as i say that could change um if if, if the values um question alters or or, or, if, or if they blunder and are seen to have done something that seems unfair or, or, or insensitive um then that could shift but at the moment he's got those two things going for him 
Uh, but James, you, you read them a, uh, something that Boris Johnson said in his party conference speech about the sort of economic model. We're not going back to the same old broken economic model with low wages, low growth, low skills and low productivity, all enabled by uncontrolled immigration. The answer, he said, was to control immigration to allow people of talent to come to this country, but not to use immigration as an excuse for failure to invest in people and in skills. So you gave them that um, uh, statement and then asked them what they, they made of it. Um, let's, let's take a listen to what, what they said. The people, the immigrants that we were using were doing the low paid jobs that, unfortunately, British people don't want to do. Because a lot of them do come to this country because we're such a pushover. I mean, a lot, a lot of those people were coming across because they heard that if they came across that little water of ours, they'd put them up in a five star hotel that cost £1,500 a night. Mm. And, it, it, you know, and then they put them on benefits. I've got a bit of a mixed view about Boris's statement. At the end of the day, we are a mixed cultural country now, and we have been since the Second World War. But at the same time, we do need the lower um, earners from immigration, those who are prepared to do the low-end jobs. But at the same time, there's a lot of English people who need to kick up the backside to go and do those jobs. A lot of the younger generation are... I think they're entitled. I think they think, well, why why should I do that? You know, and let let somebody else do it. So yeah, I think unfortunately, the jobs won't get filled without the migrant. Um... Uh, James Johnson, I'm intrigued by you've been doing these focus groups for a lot long time now. My sense is, if you'd done this four, five, six, seven years ago, concern about immigration would be much higher, and that was pretty nuanced. Um, responses to the to the issue? Yeah, I think it also slightly depends on which group of swing voters you're speaking to. So obviously here we haven't necessarily honed in on those new Tory voters in some of those red wall seats that the Conservatives gained in the North and the Midlands. Why do focus groups in those areas, and particularly in uh, small towns in, in, in those regions, um, immigration is still very much front of mind and there are still real uh, frustrations and concerns about it. Um, so it's certainly not gone away completely, um, and particularly for those new Tory voters. Um, but yeah, we saw a pretty mixed mixed view here. We saw people pointing out about uh, lower skill jobs that they felt that actually Brits wouldn't do. We then saw the flip side of that, which was actually these uh, British people needed to be mobilised, needed to actually um, partake in, in the labour market in some of these jobs. Um, then we saw people refer to a mixed or multicultural country in, in a proud way um yeah. and then we saw others talking about uh, concerns about legal immigration and contribution so a lot of things flying around quite a mixed view um uh, but certainly um news for both sides there i suppose not a negative reaction necessarily to boris johnson's vision of of of, of immigration um uh, but nor nor a uh, a particularly um, a particularly positive one either yeah, maybe just a bit sceptical about uh, how, how realistic it is. Well, this is uh, now my favourite bit because, uh, in fact, someone uh, just messaged in saying they're not, not against focus groups, but people are very bad at predicting what they're going to do next. And uh, when you asked them, you know, how would you vote next? I think almost the entire group uh, pretty much said they were going to vote Conservative. But obviously that's in the future. More informative is actually just how are you feeling right now? And you asked them if you could send a message right now uh, to Boris Johnson uh, what would it be? I'm sure. I'm sure he's listening. In fact, uh, we've put them on social media, so I'm sure someone in his team is, will already see them. Um, in a moment, we'll hear what they said to Keir Starmer. But this is the message from the focus group to Boris Johnson. Just keep doing what you're doing. Good job. I'd say make it fair. Don't have fat cats and um, cream off the 
poorer people. Don't steal off the poor people because they're the easy targets. Make it fairer. Yeah, again, yeah, make tax a level playing field. Echoing what everybody else has said, keep it fair, but on the whole, you're doing a good job. Make sure um, the rich don't get richer by paying less tax. Temple. Uh, try and safeguard um, finance to uh, overcome all the money that we now owe. Now, in, in, right in there, the single word that stands out for me, James, is just fairness. This feeling that we know there were tough times coming ahead and there's still this niggling doubt that the Tories won't deal with the problems the country faces fairly. Yeah, and this is the big this is the big one for, for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives. They've over the last year managed to stay on the right side of that line. Um they had a couple of wobbles. Um certainly Dominic Cummings' trip to Barnard Castle, um, which I think came up in every focus group we did in twenty twenty, um, undermined that feeling of fairness and certainly did also undermine the Conservative lead in the polls. Um the other event this year um, that that had uh, the most negative impact both in our focus groups and also uh, uh, detracted from the Conservative lead in the polls was that very brief, if you remember, decision on a Sunday morning um, that Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak would not self-isolate when pinged uh, by the uh, COVID app or test and trace. Um, now, that was very quickly U-turned, but it still came up in our Times Radio focus group that week and it came up in a lot of my other focus groups and in the polls as well. So anything that feels unfair anything that feels um like it's not on the side uh, of ordinary people that the labor are able to paint the conservatives uh, as as being on that side of the argument is the real danger for the tories going forward so that's the risk for boris johnson uh, finally then i suppose the big question is uh, can labor capitalize on uh, that that question of fairness this was the uh, focus group panel's message to keir starmer he needs to give up the ghost <laughs> and make way for somebody else Get a personality, I'll leave. Uh, uh, goodbye. I think you need to go. I think if, if he could come across a little bit more genuine and, um, yeah, maybe find a different role. Move over, let someone else take over. Yeah, definitely, let someone else take the reins. Um, it's not good enough. Wow. Um, like you said, James, the, the Labour Party will be doing their own focus groups they'll be getting very similar messages. I don't think we've ever... I'm not sure anyone on the focus groups before has said that Keir Starmer should go. It's previously the message has been sort of, be better. Yeah, it was quite amusing, the suggested um, alternatives. We had two people say Ed Balls and one say David Miliband. Now, neither of these people are obviously in, in frontline uh, Labour politics at the moment. So uh, it's not clear what their, what their alternative might be. Um, but yes, a lot of frustration. We obviously know as well that Keir Starmer's uh, personal ratings are not uh, much improving either in the in the in the public polls. Um, so it's it's very it is very difficult listening for Keir Starmer indeed. Now, I suppose the key caveat to all of this is focus groups are a snapshot, and that comment you read out um, is absolutely right. Voters are are terrible at predicting their own future behaviour, and it's not impossible um, that were an election campaign to take place that voters would be reintroduced to Keir Starmer um, and that the entire picture could change. That certainly happened in 2017 when Jeremy Corbyn went into that election campaign very unpopular and came out of it um, pretty neutral. So it can happen. Um, and particularly, as I say, with that fairness issue, um, particularly uh, uh, with um, that contrast between perhaps Boris Johnson, the bumbler, um, a more prime ministerial leader, you could potentially see Labour making, making inroads. 
I think, though, on this basis, with that protection from the pandemic in terms of uh, Boris Johnson's reputation, from those different sources of mistrust that we talked about, uh, and that very hostile reaction to Keir Starmer, it's certainly hard to see a story in which things change very, very quickly anytime soon, um, and Labour starts to significantly uh, overtake the Conservatives in the polls. And that is because they don't feel there is a viable alternative. Labour has serious brand issues on the economy, on immigration, on crime, um, and they don't feel that their leader is particularly good either. And that is a real obstacle for them at this point in time. And if you were advising Keir Starmer right now, what what would you suggest uh, to him? Because but, you know, the, the message of Johnson, you know, the, the fairness thing was pretty clear. But if, if voters have started making... Uh, you know, this whole thing, you, you only get you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. He argued for 18 months, Keir Starmer, that he hadn't been able to make his first impression because of COVID. And we all had to wait for his big party conference speech, none of whom uh, seem to have uh, noticed it at all. What can he do to sort of reboot? Or, or is there a risk? You know, people have said, is he is he Tony Blair? Is he John Smith? Is he Neil Canuck? Is there a real risk he actually ends up being Ian Duncan Smith? Well, I think he really needs to try and, um, and it's, it is easier said than done, and it is, it is difficult to do this, but he needs to try and find moments to really uh, distinguish himself. And I don't just mean from Boris Johnson, but from his own party. I think the biggest risk for Keir Starmer now is that he sort of goes through to the next election, trying to broadly keep the Labour Party on side, yes, with a few difficulties, a few heckles, but broadly keeping the church together while trying to reach out to voters. But in trying to do both, actually doesn't manage to do either particularly successfully. So I think there needs to be a bit of taking on uh, his own party. I think also finding those moments to really distinguish with the Conservatives. Um, two massive opportunities this year that were wasted um, but before both of these tax rising moments where the Labour Party could have come out before, uh, suggested their own tax rise, which perhaps impacted people on higher incomes more, for example, um, and then dared Rishi Sunak um, uh, to do it. Instead, they ended up opposing the tax rises and then eventually uh, coming around to that fairness line anyway. So I think that's the real difficulty uh, for, for how Keir Starmer is governing at the moment. We're in this world, like I said, I keep, I've, no, I've said it about two times, but you know, this vortex of mistrust that voters are operating in, they don't know what to sort of believe and what to see. It sort of feels like actually the Corbyn 2017 playbook, you know, getting incendiary stories out there, firing out uh, you know, slightly radical things that people are a bit blindsided by, might have been actually a better playbook for the times we're in, particularly up against Boris Johnson, um, than this more managerial approach by Keir Starmer. Now, Corbyn obviously then ran into significant issues in 2019. But I think this, this playing it safe strategy is Keir Starmer's biggest danger at the moment. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.